ask you to stand and take your Bible. Our text is Mark chapter 5. I apologize for the typo in the note there. It's Mark 5, uh, verses 21 through 42. Mark 5, 21 through 42. Follow along as we read from God's Word, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him fell at his feet, and imploring him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she, may, so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse, after hearing about Jesus, came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman whom had done this. But the woman, fearing, trembling, and aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion, people loudly weeping and wailing. And he entered in, and he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his companions and entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talithia kumi, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that, Something should be given to her to eat. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Father, there is so much to be thankful for on this post-Sunday after Thanksgiving. Most of us have gathered with family and friends, loved ones. Most of us had plenty to eat, Lord. We are grateful for those things. We're grateful for a land that we live in, Lord, that is still free and allows us to do things which we're doing this morning, gathering in large groups and preaching and worshiping and, and fellowshipping together, Lord. Father, we're grateful for the wealth you give us, Lord. 
most around the world don't make even a portion of what we do, Lord. And yet you've allowed us, by your grace and mercy, by your providential, to put us here at this place and this time. Lord, we thank you for that. And Father, we all may be suffering from one thing or another, but it is with grateful hearts that we come to you. Lord, and the gratefulness goes beyond the blessings of just physical life. We are so grateful, Father, that you sent your Son. It is the greatest expression of love ever known. And for that, Lord, we are so thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and added to his divine nature humanity and lived on this world and walked among people as we see today showing compassion and grace, but all leading to a greater cause. That was his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Lord, without that, we would be just humanly grateful. We would just have mere things to thank you for. But on this morn, Lord, we can say, Lord, thank you for saving our souls, to rescuing us, to giving us an eternal redemption with you. That's true thanksgiving, Lord. And we credit you for doing that, Lord. On our own, we would not not be able to do that. And so, Lord, we thank you. Receive that thanksgiving. Receive that as worship, Lord, as it is due. Father, there are many, clearly, Lord, on the road today. We pray that you would give them safety, Lord. And it's probably not only our church, but many Christians traveling home today. God, will you continue to hedge them in, Lord, Protect them as they travel busy roads and fly busy airports, Lord. Father, be with those who are not well. There are some in the hospital even today of our dear family here. Lord, we pray that your your mercy would be upon them. And we pray that you would heal them, Lord. We know that you can do that. But through all this process, draw them closer to you. Help them trust you more, Lord. Father, be with those who just no longer have the strength to come to church. And so, Lord, we pray for our shut-ins, those who uh, don't have the ability to come fellowship with us any longer, and they await your arrival to take them home. And so pray, give them strength, Lord. May we be mindful of the weak and those who cannot assemble, Lord. Father, thank you for our youth that are in this room. We're so grateful for the next generation that you continue to raise up. Young people who are learning the truths of the Lord Jesus Christ, may you grip their hearts, Lord. And Lord, if you tarry, may they replace us as men and women, moms and dads, strong people that know the Lord Jesus Christ and live for them. And we pray that you would do this for your glory, Lord. Now, Father, as we study your word and express great truths that you have given to us, Lord, may it strengthen our hearts today. May we not be uh, uh, feeble-minded, but stand on your truth and know that we have a great Savior came and accomplished something far more greater than the miracles that we'll see today. That is the miracle of salvation. And so we praise you for that today. May we strengthen by your words in Jesus' name. Amen. As I noted in your notes, it's Mark chapter 5, verse 21 through 43. That is the text that we have read and we will study that today. As Jesus was getting ready for, uh, to go to the cross, you remember those great words as he finishes out chapter 13, and remember those chapter breaks weren't there, but, but there at the end of chapter 13, he tells his disciples whom he loved, and truly they loved him, that he was going to go away, 
that caused great trouble in their heart. And so in John chapter 14, verse 1, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Remember that? He's, he's reassuring them. He says, believe in God, what? Then believe also in me. Believe also in me. This is the key for our troubles. And it is the key for the troubles of those within our text that we see. Not only just troubles of life. We'll see things that are common to man in this text. Death and, and uh, assailments that cause bodily problems from this fallen world. But he is, belief in Jesus is the key to our eternal life. And that's ultimately what this text is. What's fascinating as we study and work our way through the book of Mark, we must remember that most of these people believe in God. <laughs> They're religious. They believe there's a God. They've been trained and raised of that. But now, think about it. The invisible God is dwelling among them. John says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld the glory of the unique one full of grace and truth and so now he is among the people he is God on earth walking among the lost in our last couple of passages that we've studied we've realized that Jesus has power and authority over the natural world right sea of Galilee great storm seasoned fishermen scared to death he stands up and just hushes the, the waves and the wind. Next, we see him with a demoniac. He goes and here's a man full of a legion of demons and, and they, are, they are just succumbed to his power. And so he has power and authority over the world of demons and, and the supernatural world. As we move into today's text, you'll see that he has power and authority over disease and death. But all this is leading to something greater. You also notice that in this text, there people who are very religious people seem to have no hope. Their hope is in their religion. Their hope is in their works. But here in our text, we'll be reminded that everything is pointing to something greater. Everything Jesus does is pointing to something greater. And I will remind you, as the title of our sermon says, if you get lost in the lesser, you will not see the greater. Do you understand that? Do you understand that's a major problem in Christianity or religion today? People get lost in the lesser and miss the greater. So the miracles that Jesus did, that's the lesser. It's all pointing to something greater that only he can do. And we'll re be reminded of that as we go through the text. But there is a problem, <laughs> There is a problem. Man's infested with this deadly disease. He's infested with it. It's called sin. It's born that way. You're born. You, this corruption is, is, comes with you at birth. And it's widespread. It just hits everyone. And so this deadly virus of sin leads to what the Bible calls the fear of death. The fear of death. And Satan has armed himself with this. This is what's amazing about him. He has the fear of death in his hand. And this is what Hebrews chapter 2, as we see the greater versus the lesser, Hebrews chapter 2, 14 says that Jesus disarmed him, that took that fear of death out of his hand. But he's been wielding this thing forever. This dark fear started in the Garden of Eden. 
and has continued throughout history. Job and David both refer to it. Job calls it um, the king of terror. David calls it the terrors of death. So there is this fear of death, and we'll see this in this text. There's this ruler, this uh, synagogue official that's coming, and, and great fear has come upon that his little daughter is going to die. And we see what it moves men and women to do. Now, the universal question here of the reality of this fear of death begs a question, who's going to conquer it? Who's going to beat it? And more than that, who can bring the answer to the rest of humanity? Who can do that? And so over and over we see Jesus provide that. Now, remember in this passage that Jesus is going to show his power over authority of disease and and physical death. He's going to do that. We've read that now. We'll see that. But all of these miracles are pointing to something greater, and we don't want to lose that. But on the way, we see such wonderful things about the Lord Jesus Christ. In this text, you see this sensitive, the sensitivity that he has to, to a woman. We'll talk about her in a minute. Amazing sensitivity to this outcast woman. He has gentleness as he deals with a little girl. He has mercy on those who don't deserve it. He's truly the mark of loving kindness to people. People you and I probably would not put up with. People who are helpless and suffering. Anybody do any Black Friday shopping? I mean, the crowds were incredible out there. And I'm studying this text right in the middle of this going, I'm not very patient with these people. In fact, I don't even like this. But that's not Jesus. (laughs) He's right in the middle of this, all with these divine appointments, all with sensitivity and mercy and kindness, all reaching out to these people that desperately needed him. Now, When we look at resurrection, remember, it points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I thought about a verse, Luke chapter 7, verse 22, and let me just tell you what it is. John the Baptist has sent his disciples and said, are you the one, right? Are you the one we've long awaited for you, the Messiah? That's the question he's asking. Jesus responds, and I want you to think about this whole text, and we've read it, and what we're going to learn here is Jesus answers him and says, go report to John what you have seen and what you've heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. We'll see that in this text. And then he makes this statement. The poor, and I think this is a spiritual position. He uses the same terminology in the, um, in, in the Beatitudes. He says, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Oh, that's the greatest of all. Notice he saved it for the last. He talked about all these physical things that were done. Blind see, lame walk, all those great things happen. (laughs) But those who are poor in spirit, those who are humble, those who need salvation, they get the gospel preached to them. And that's what Jesus is about. So don't get lost in the lesser. And though the lesser is beautiful here, and we want to, I want to make sure you see the beauty and compassion of Jesus Christ in this text to this, to this family and to this woman. But there's something greater. And I want to warn you, don't get lost in some of these things. So many people throughout the ages in Christianity have got lost in the lesser and have missed the greater. Let's look at a couple of thoughts this morning in our text. Number one, Jesus was ministry-minded. I love this about him. I learn from him every time I study him. Jesus was ministry-minded, 
but was undeterred from his divine appointments. Look at verse, one with me, or verse 21 with me. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. It seems that Jesus is just undeterred by large crowds. I, I shy away from him, he runs right into him. Uh, he, so i got to learn from that. He, he loves to be among the people. He has goals and, and he has appointments that he wants. And he's just opposite of what we see of the religious leaders. They're always on the outside. They're, they're looking to be secluded away from the crowds. They saw the crowds as unclean. They saw themselves better than them. But Jesus seems to run right towards them when you study him. Occasionally, we, we do believe that Jesus took time away. He prayed. He instructed his his uh, disciples, but most of the time when you study the text, he's among the people. Over and over and over, and he is such a great example for us. Now, Mark chapter 5, verse 1 through 20, he's crossed the Sea of Galilee just to win one man, right? And, and he exercises authority over this demonic world. He shows this power that he has. Today's text, he goes right back across the sea again, and this time into this huge crowd. The Luke account, Luke chapter 8, verse 40, um, reads this way. The people welcomed him. <laughs> They're just waiting on the shore for, for Jesus to come. And then it says this, for they had been waiting for him. So you can see this large crowd anticipating, where did he go? You know, He's across the sea, wild ride that night. Disciples thinking they're going to die. He speaks to his creation, calms it out, lands on the, on the shore, takes care of a demoniac, and brings him to himself, puts him in his right mind, overcomes everything the world could not overcome, saves him, sends him back to his people, gets back in the boat, and goes back across the sea to all these people that are waiting for him. I don't know if I'd done that. I'd go, man, I need a break. I need a week off. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. He wanted to be with the people. He had divine appointments. And this crowd, remember, they're full of people with disease. There's people dying. They're wanting to be healed. They're wanting to be fed. And so Jesus is unafraid of such a group. And he seems to be right in the middle of them. Now, with that in mind, Jesus also has some divine appointments in the middle of this massive crowd. And Mark's going to focus in on two of them. And like all the people... Um, these two individuals, they desperately need Jesus, like everybody. These two are focused on in this text. And what's interesting about them, think about it, they have such little in common. He's not after this one uh, demographic of people. He's after people that are really on the different end of the perspective, right? And it just shows us that God is not a respecter of persons. He, he, he says, the Bible says, he, if you lift me up, Jesus says, I'll draw all men, all peoples, all groups, every tribe, tongue, nations, I'll draw all those people to me. That's what he does. Now, think about the diversity of the elect as you look in this text. Look at this. One's a man, the other's a woman. One is wealthy, the other's poor. One is respected, the other has been rejected. One is honored, the other is ashamed. One has help, the other is alone. One probably leads the synagogue, the other is deemed unclean and has no access to religious services. One has a 12-year-old daughter that's dying, the other has a 12-year-old severe medical problem. 
And though these two come from complete different worlds, the Lord Jesus is going to draw them to himself and show his mercy and show his glory to them. Second thought, Jesus shows, shows grace and mercy to the privileged. I want to start with the first guy, um, Jairus. Verses 22 through 24, one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and upon seeing him fell at his feet and he implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Well, it's no secret and I don't doubt that Jairus knew this, that the religious elite did not like Jesus. We've seen that as we've studied so far. And probably, probably to the shock of the disciples, the first divine appointment is with an official of the synagogue that he has. Of all this massive group of people, this first divine appointment is with someone who doesn't like him, or at least comes from a group of people who don't. And doubtlessly, the crowd parted as this well-known synagogue official comes to the Lord Jesus and makes his appeal. Now, something about these guys a little bit so you know who we're talking about. These synagogue officials were a group of men that oversaw individual synagogues. And they would range anywhere from three to seven guys, depending on the size of the synagogue, which depend on the size of the town. This would have been probably in Capernaum. And these officials, they acted in several ways. They were caretakers of the facilities. They were administrators of, of the synagogue. They guarded the scrolls. Very important job. You did not want anybody tampering with the word of God. They cared for and kept up facilities because just like our building, they had to keep things up and going. So they oversaw that. They organized all the synagogue schools. So if you would go to Sabbath school, um, this is where the people that organized the teachers and those who were there. They also supervised the readings on the Sabbath, particularly. Remember in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes and the attendant hands him the scroll and he reads from that. That's probably Jairus or someone like him. So they also uh, supervise the teachers and who prays in the synagogues, all the things that goes on there. So this means that Jairus was a, a well-known, devout and well-respected man in the religious community. And that probably means he probably wasn't a Pharisee, but he was probably friends with them. And he certainly knew that they did not like Jesus. But what is clear is Jairus knew Jesus was a miracle worker. He knew Jesus could do something that no one else could do. He knew he had authority over the demonic world. He knew that. Because maybe, possibly, even in Mark chapter 1, we already saw this, where Jesus cast out a, a demon out of a man right in the synagogue, possibly that was Jairus' synagogue. Maybe he was there, and he saw that. But notice in verse 22, this synagogue official named Jairus came up, and upon seeing him, fell at his feet, and this, this imploring comes out of him. He implores, saying, my little daughter's at the point of death. What a response to Jesus. And I want you to think about this. This trip to the feet of Jesus probably was very costly for him. Now this is my conjecture here. Uh, we don't know this. But these men who were in religious leaders hated Jesus. <laughs> hated him so much that they would put together a scheme and not to me too far from this time to kill him publicly. I'll guarantee you it costs Jairus, great amount 
of religious prosperity, um, all the things that he probably had. And so here he is now at the feet of Jesus. But wouldn't the life of your daughter drive you to do that? I mean, think about that. This precious daughter, this 12-year-old girl, is to the point of death, the Bible says. His only hope now is the one who can cast out demons. That's one thing he knows about this man, that the demonic world has no authority over him. He can cast them out, and he's probably seen him do healings, and he knows that this man is unique. And so here he is at the feet of Jesus. As Jairus makes his way through the crowd, the scene of his reputation must be replaced with faith. I mean, think about that. His reputation and who he was, because now he's probably going to be on the outs with everybody. That has to be replaced with faith. God has to do something miraculous in his life. He has to give up what everybody thinks about him in order to place his faith in one who could do something that he could not. As he arrives before Jesus, Jairus falls to the feet of Jesus. Matthew 9, 18, the other count uses this word that we would often, often see for worship. Same thing the demons did before Jesus. They, there's a submission, but here it's a position of humility, a, a position of submission before Christ. Notice in verse 23, there's an imploring here. And, and I think that word is so important because he's imploring. He's imploring the only one that he has hope that can do something. Only one that can fix his problem. In other words, not only can you, and he says this in verse 23 in so many ways, notice he says, please come lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. In other words, only you can prevent death. Only you can stop this and you can make her well. That's God-given faith. He can't come from his position of this rejection of Christ to saying, only you can give life. Verse 42 tells us that this little girl is 12 years old. And 12 for a, for a Jewish girl is a very important date. It was, it was the time they in, entered womanhood. Their weddings could now be planned for. This is the beginning of their adult life. But Jairus calls her, and he says this little term. Notice in the verse he says, my little daughter, in verse 23. This is a precious term. He's suffering at the thought of losing her. He, he, he's overwhelmed with the thought of this little girl is going to die. She's at the point of death. You are my only hope, Lord Jesus. But I love what most about this is he doesn't care what people think anymore. He doesn't care. When, when Jesus is your only hope, you don't care what other people think. You're going to go right to him. And this is what Jairus does. Providentially, Jesus was right there. Think about this. He's in his town. He's by his synagogue. They're ready to meet because of this divine appointment. Notice verse 24. Jesus went off with him, and the large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. The creator of the world in human form is available to minister to this desperate family. <laughs> wow. You know that's not any different than us? You know, Jesus never, what, leaves you nor forsakes you? The creator of the world, Colossians calls Jesus the creator of the world, the one that holds all things together, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He's right there. 
And with this massive crowd in tow, Jesus is off to Jairus' home. Now, three, next scene. Jesus shows grace and mercy to the poor and outcast. The scene scene really shifts here in verse 25. And and clearly, Jairus is this privileged part of the religious society. He has a great position within the synagogues. He's well known by all the elite And his heart must have been pounding in anticipation that maybe his daughter would be healed because he uses those words, you can make her well, you can stop this death, you can do these things. And maybe, maybe even, think about this, he's trying to hurry Jesus along. Do you think, would you? Can I drive? (laughs) That would be my question. Because if my child is sick, I'm running lights. And you can see Jairus trying to hurry the Lord Jesus along, but all of a sudden the momentum shifts, right? There's a game change here. Jesus' next divine appointment shows up. And boy, is she different. And she's on the other end of the perspective. She is poor. She's socially and religiously outcast, and she's an unclean woman. According to Leviticus chapter 15, her blood flow made her ceremonially unclean. A woman had to wait seven days after the bleeding stopped before offering sacrifices or worshiping at the temple, or in this case, the synagogue. For 12 years, this woman had been considered unclean. Unclean. That means she was completely ostracized from her family, her friends, who would not be able to touch her lest they become unclean. Can you imagine her life? Can you imagine all that she'd been through? Jairus' daughter was 12, but this woman had been bleeding for 12 years, the Bible tells us in verse 25. Verse 26, the Bible says that she had endured much at the hands of physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all. In fact, she got worse, the Bible tells us. And so this illness drained her financially. She's broke and she's in worse condition. Can you imagine what they put her through? Yes, um, they still had doctors and they did know certain things, but it was still primitive. I, I read in one commentary of lots of things that they, the Jewish had all kinds of remedies and, and almost mystical remedies that they would bring into illnesses that the doctors could not fix. One of them was removing corn from donkey dung and carrying that around. They believed that. You know, can you imagine what this woman went through? She'd been to the doctors and everybody else has a new remedy. Oh, if you do this. Or if you do this. And she had spent a little more money, a little more just to try to remedy this until she had nothing left. All the wise tales and doctors' views, nothing had come. I love verse 27. Look at this. And hearing about Jesus, I love that phrase. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him. Clearly, she determined, I think about this, she determined in her mind, I'm going to find this Jesus. I believe in him because he can do what no one else could do. Is he the greater through the lesser? Even though it is talking about the miracle of her healing, you can see the greater because no one else could do what she needs done. It's pointing to something greater. This woman was desperate. She's financially bankrupt. She's broke. And she is ceremonially an outcast. 
and she's pushing her way through the crowd. What did that look like? For Jairus, maybe as he came, well known, maybe the crowd parted for him. Maybe the crowd parted for her for a little different reason. They know who she is. And she's unclean. But her faith is driving her towards Jesus. Her faith is pushing her. She believes that if I just touch his garment, my life will be changed. Verse 28, for she thought, listen to this here. Isn't it cool that the Bible records the thoughts of people? If that's not inspiration, I don't know what it is. If I just touch his garment, I will get well. I will get well. She must have known the power and authority to heal that belonged to Jesus. And it must have been that her faith was not in, his, in her clothing, but in him. Right? She, she must have believed that he had something to offer her that no one else could. And I think, this is my thought here, that God gave her faith. And there was a clear distinction between hers and many others in the crowd. And I think that's why these divine appointments happen, because God knows whose are his, and Christ knows those divine appointments. He knows genuine faith versus a man-centered faith. He knows the difference of them. And here this woman makes her way through the crowd. Look at the results of this in verse 29. Immediately after touching the garment of Jesus, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. The very moment she touches the garment of Jesus, she's healed. Twelve years of disappointment in doctors and osteration by society is instantly gone because of the power of God. Can you imagine what went through this woman's mind? She knew in her heart, she knew in her body that something's drastically different. This one that I put my faith in, that I knew he was one that could fix me, could deal with me, he did it. Now, Jesus has a way bigger plan for her than healing. She's done her best to quietly touch Jesus and escape. You can see the scene here. But God was going to magnify his son through this gracious event, and Jesus was going to draw her to himself. Look at verse 30 and 31. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turning around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? You've got to love uh, the disciples respond here. And the disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing. Weren't you at the outlets this weekend? <laughs> you can see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, who touched me? It's almost, you know, it's almost a little bit too far, right? You're talking to Jesus here, disciples. You can see that they're frustrated, right? They don't have the patience Jesus has. This would be me, right? Hun, I got to go. There's too many here. I gotta get me out of here, Right? That's, that's, that's the difference, right, between them. But the Spirit had empowered Jesus in his humanity. And he was fully God. Don't forget that. He's fully man. He's empowered by the Spirit of God. But he is fully God. And so when she touches him, he perceives that healing power flow from him. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 30 says, He upholds all things, isn't this, by the word of his power. And so he... He sensed that power, that healing power flow from him as this woman touches him. And clearly Jesus knew her physical condition was healed, but he, he wants to deal with her spiritual condition. And so he says, who touched me? 
And the word pressing is, I, I, I passed this up, but the word pressing is an interesting word. I looked it up because I, I didn't recognize it in the original language. And it means to compress or jam together. <laughs> I mean, think about that. That's, that's, that's a real big crowd. And, and yet in all that, Jesus looks around. Look at verse 32. Look at the phrasing here. He looked around to see the woman who had done this. He knows exactly who this is. And Jesus had a divine appointment and he's looking for her. Verse 33, but the woman fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Here this precious lady now who just wanted to disappear. She had suffered enough shame. And, and the fear of further exposure caused her to try to slip away, but she knew Jesus was talking to her. Right? Isn't that amazing? You know when Jesus is talking to you, don't you? Through the word of God. You've been, you know when God's convicted you of things or he's come after you. I've had so many people say, Pastor, you're preaching that sermon. You were preaching at me. You knew what my life was going through. I, I, I'm not Jesus and I don't know that. But we know that's the power of God's word, isn't it? And here, God's word, Jesus is speaking. And though she wanted to slink away and just say, man, I've been, I've been so, been, I've been through so much and I don't want to be exposed anymore. She knew. She knew her Savior was calling her. And certainly there was also a healthy fear of Jesus because she knew his power. Who is this? That I could touch the hem of his garment and I'm healed. And think about this. With faith and awe of Jesus, she returns right back to him. With great faith and awe of Jesus, she falls before her Savior. And the Bible says she told him the whole truth, which, of course, he already knew. <laughs> this, is what, this is what salvation in Christ, this is what faith in him does. It brings forth the truth out of us. Here's the truth. And this pours forth from her. Verse 34, and he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Here the Lord affirms her true faith. It's remarkable here. He calls her daughter. Um, and I want to just camp on this for just, just a moment here. Um, the, Bible, the Bible uses some interesting language here. Uh, it uses several words. Uh, Thugator is this word for daughter. It's, it's a word meant for family member. It's a very, very intimate term. And then he uses the word pistas or pistes um, here. It's a word for faith, or we would translate it belief. And then he uses what's most amazing, the Greek word sozo. Uh, sozo ken is the word. It means to save. To save. And so we would translate it, my daughter, your belief has saved you. That's really the, the strong translation of this. Our, we, we struggle to get it across in English always, in our English languages, but it's such a strong statement. He, he says, look, your faith, this God-given faith, your belief in me has saved you. We interpret it made you well, but has the idea of, he could have used a different word there, but he used sozo, saved. This has saved you. See, many people have a hoping faith. A man-made faith. Well, I hope God's real. I hope he's really who he said he is. But then there's those who will say, 
All I have is Christ. <laughs> That's a big difference, isn't it? All I have is Christ. And God gave this woman tremendous faith. And in the end, he says, go in peace. Now think about that. You're my daughter. You have this saving faith. Now go in peace. You're not at war any longer. What great terminology. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. She's now at peace with God. That is a unique phrasing. Out of all of these masses, remember how many people are there, there are two individuals out of the whole group that are exercising saving faith. And Jesus knows both of them. And he calls, them, calls her my daughter. Greater is this statement because it reminds us that Jesus was after more than just healing. He's after his children. He's collecting them one by one. And though Jesus was on his way to a divine appointment with Jairus' daughter, he graciously stops and deals with this woman who had suffered so much. And he gives her so much more than just healing. Number four, we kind of return back to the, the main story. Number four, Jesus shows grace and mercy despite a deadly delay. Now, we don't know how long this delay was or this interaction with this woman took place, but here's what it was long enough for that child to die, right? Because notice in verse 35, the Bible tells us while he was still speaking, he's still interacting with this woman, they came from the house of the synagogue's official saying, look at this phrase, can you imagine the lump in his throat? Your daughter has died. Right during this deadly delay, while Jesus is interacting with this woman, this child is dying. And this was truly a deadly delay in Jairus' mind. Can you imagine what happened to his heart when he heard those words? I, I know some of you in here have lost children. You've shared your testimony with me. And I have not, and all I can do is weep with those who have gone through such a thing. But I think all of us who have ever had a child in our hands and in our arms and have loved a child can at least get their minds somewhat around the instant grief that must have hit Jarius. Your daughter's dead. Stop troubling this man. Similar reaction was Mary and Martha. See, they see Jesus as a miracle worker. They see him as doing something they've never seen anybody else do. But he can't do death. Nobody can do death. Mary and Martha both said, Oh, Lord, if you were only here, he would not have died. That's pretty limited faith, isn't it? But we would do the same, wouldn't we? And so they don't know who they're dealing with. Don't lose sight of the scene. The scene's still happening. Maybe only the closest around them can hear. The masses are still pressing in. Uh, uh, there's a woman there that's just been healed. Maybe she's weeping with great joy as God has flooded her heart with faith and she's healed. There's a sadness of the messengers. How would you like to be that guy or gal who said, hey, your daughter's dead? There's a broken-hearted dad in the middle of all this. And there's a tremendous amount of human fallenness just standing around the unshakable Jesus Christ. It's an unbelievable scene. Look at verse 36. Jesus, overhearing what had been spoken, said to them, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid, 
any longer. Only believe. Believe in God. Believe also in me. What tremendous statement here. Sometimes Jesus knows the thoughts and sometimes he overhears conversations. But either way, he is always perfect in his response. And he gives a perfect response to this man. Don't fear. Believe. Man, is that good, is that good uh, counsel, isn't it? Anybody fear in here of things? You got a list of fears. That, be honest, you know we all do. A list of fears. Medical, health, financial, relational. I mean, we all have fears. There is only one who can solve that. It always comes back to Christ. And so he has to be the center of all things. And so he, he tells Jairus, don't fear. Don't be afraid. Believe. Believe. And Jesus, knowing Jairus' fears and what was going through his heart and mind at that time, knowing he would be tempted to doubt, knowing he'd be tempted to just slink away, he said, fight fear and believe. The Luke account, Luke chapter 8, verse 50 says, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe she will be made well. You haven't even seen her, you don't even know the situation, Jesus. Oh yeah, I do. I know all things. What mercy and tenderness Jesus had in his comfort of this distraught father. Look at 37 and 38. He allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And so here he is. The master arrives at the house. He takes Peter, James, and John, his, his inner circle Probably much to do with what they were going to go on and do with the early church. And he arrives there. The funeral's already started. That means she's good and dead because you don't start funerals with a live person, I don't think. The funeral's going on. And, and if you know anything about first century Jewish funerals, they're anything but quiet. They're very outward. Meaning everyone knows a funeral's happening when a funeral's happening. There's tremendous commotion and there's even music. First of all, everyone tears their clothes. In fact, they tore the clothes particularly over their heart and they are known to have funeral clothes because if your good friend dies, you go to it, you rip your clothing over your heart. You are allowed by the, the traditions to re-stitch that up so you could use it again. So you have all these people with torn clothes, particularly torn over their heart, and you wore these clothes for 30 days. Second, if you're wealthy, the more mourners you had was more the status you had. So even in death, pride would come in. So if you were wealthy, you would have more mourners because you were looked at as more religious or more powerful or more higher status because you had more people to mourn, and you actually hired professional mourners, and they were very good at mourning. In fact, it was their job. They would act out mourning on your behalf. Third, there was always musicians. And even in the traditions, even a poor person would have to have at least two flutes at the death of a loved one. Those who had more money, probably a man like Jarius, would hire uh, a whole group of people to play sorrowful music. So when Jesus arrives at Jarius' house, it's in a morning uproar. <laughs> there's loud wailing. There's sorrowful music playing. 
And there's a truly sorrowful family somewhere amongst that mix. There's a mom there. There's a dad trailing along with Jesus, knowing his, his servants had come and said, your daughter's dead. They're in the midst of this false mourning. What a mess. Look at verse 39. And at the end, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? Child has not died, but asleep. As this massive crowd following Jesus arrives at Jairus' house, the scene of this enormous commotion of people following Jesus, professional mourners, musicians going on, Jesus says, what's, what's the commotion? What's going on here? Luke, the Luke account says Jesus said, stop weeping. He told them to stop doing this. Matthew account says Jesus told them to leave. I like that. Get out. I'm going to do something far beyond what you understand. One thing is certain, we can believe that Jesus brought this funeral to a halt. And he broke the silence and he said this, The child has not died, but is asleep. That certainly woke some people up. And I think what happens is right here, Jesus exposes the hearts of most people. You're talking about things only God can do. To most people, the Bible says this is a joke. Notice in verse 40, they began to laugh at him. They began to laugh at him. They don't understand quite probably, except those that were really close to him, what just took place with the woman. It's just a massive crowd trying to get to Jesus, hoping they can get some healing or some food or something from him. Most people don't know that's going on. They're just wanting Jesus to do something for them. They don't understand and then most of them probably don't know that Jairus' daughter is dead. They just think he's some kind of miracle worker that can do some things. But Jesus knew that unbelief is the most deadly thing. And so he makes a comment to him: She is not dead. She merely sleeps. Once the unbelievers are removed, notice in verse 40, he puts them all out. I like that phrase. Get out. Isn't that interesting? He truly knows people who follow him and don't. And he separates people. He does that. Get out. You don't believe. And he removes them and he keeps people who do believe in him. And in fact, the Bible says he took along the child's father who, who clearly came with incredible faith saying, only you can prevent my child from dying and make her well. Took the mother, which would have been the, uh, the, 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 the wife to Jairus, this dear one relationship there, and he brings in these three disciples, his companions. In verse 40, enters the room where the child was. Notice verse 41, taking the child by hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. So Jesus' grace and mercy floods through in this tremendous compassion. The synagogue's official now has Jesus in his home. His daughter's life is now in his hand. He's holding him. He uses this term, talithia. It's an interesting term. Um, it certainly can mean little girl, but it means youthful one. And it also used of a young lamb, that term of a young lamb. 
And so the creator of the universe, think about this, the creator of the universe is in the bedroom with this little girl holding this little girl's hand, this little lamb, this precious one. And, and the Bible says precious is the death of his godly ones. This lamb is not going to stay dead. Notice the word in verse 42, immediately. Luke account says her spirit immediately returned to her. The little girl was one moment dead and alive the next and walking around. And think about this, no recovery, no rehab, no physical therapy. The creator has acted and she's completely well. Astounding. <laughs> Astounding. It's so astounding the word means bewilderment in fact the word means that you actually outside of yourself they were that astounding i mean they they must have thought similar thoughts that they had the night in the boat on the sea of galilee who is this man who can command the seas and the wind who is this man that can return life to the dead it must have gone through their hearts at some level in other words, it means there's no human explanation for what they just saw. The life giver has given life. Parents, can you imagine this scene? You've grieved already. Your heart has started that process. You're, you're still struggling with, is this real? And here comes the Lord of glory. And he raises your daughter from the dead. Last thought here. Jesus shows grace and mercy Excuse my English, but you ain't seen nothing yet. Verse 43, he gave strict orders so that no one should know about this. And he said that someone, something should be given to her to eat. He gives the girl something to eat. She's completely healed, but she's human, so she needs food for strength. But the phrase we want to look at here now and just kind of finish our thoughts out this morning is, why does Jesus give strict orders that no one should know about this? Well, I think there's several reasons. One is it would only work up the crowd even more. A crowd that doesn't come to him by faith. A crowd that has human faith, not a God-given faith. It's just going to work them up even more. It's going to be more difficult for him to do ministry because of the pressing crowd that wants more for themselves. Secondly, I think Jesus in time and when one day, if not already, he has used it, he will use these miracles to judge mankind. Romans says that he has made his divine nature plain to see. And these will be judgments upon people who rejected Jesus someday. But third and the most important thing about these miracles is I think they point to something greater. There's something greater. Look with me at Mark 8. We'll stay within the book. Look at Mark 8. And then we'll wrap this up. Mark chapter 8, verse 30. Peter's great confession is recorded here, just a portion of it, not the extent that Matthew reports here. As he asks them what, who they think he is, and Peter answers, you are the Christ, in verse 29. Verse 30, he warned them, to tell no one about him. And here's what he's doing. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. See, Jesus knew that these miracles were only a forerunner 
to what he was really going to do. Have you ever thought of the miracles as a forerunner? We certainly put John the Baptist into that category, don't we? John the Baptist was a forerunner. But think about his miracles. Think about what he does. They are not the end game. They are the lesser of the greater things God is going to do. They're a forerunner. And so he says, look, don't tell them about these things. He, he really, in our, back in our text in chapter 5, it's a strong Strong exhortation, don't tell people about this. Because you ain't seen nothing yet. And I want to remind you, every time you read these miracles in God's word, remember that they point to something greater. They're pointing to a greater work that Jesus is going to do. He's not just a healer, he's a savior. And the story wasn't finished. Satan's still running around. Sin's still taking people to hell. Death still has great fear and power over men. And that's not done until Jesus gets on that cross. And every miracle he did, every raising from the dead, and we have at least three, Lazarus, this little girl, and Nain's son, raised from the dead, at least three that I can think of off the top of my head, every one of those point to a future resurrection that will save your soul from eternal death. And that's the goal of this. And too many churches, brothers and sisters, now preach these things and hold on to the lesser things and try to recapture some of these things. And they miss the greater because they focus so heavily on the miraculous things of Jesus and miss the greatest miracle is that he can save your soul from hell. And people get caught up and drug away with the supernatural and the fantastic things that they want to create about Jesus. This is all pointing to the fact that yes, he has power over the natural world, the supernatural world, the disease and dead. But the greatest thing he's going to do is rise from the grave and beat sin, Satan, and death for you. That's the greatest thing. And one more thought as I close. You want to talk about healing? Let me give you a promise from God's word. If you're a, if you're a member, if, if, you're, if you're a member of God's family, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be healed someday. Don't let them rob you of that. It may not be in this lifetime, but I promise you, you will stand before the God of glory perfectly healed. And we do believe God heals. There's testimonies in here that are unexplainable, that things went away, that were there at one time. We know he still does that. We still believe that as a church. We believe he does those things. But let me promise you, he will heal you. You will be right in your mind, body, and soul as you stand before our great God and King someday. He heals. And our hope is in that. And someday, he doesn't, he doesn't choose to heal us on this earth. And we don't understand all of that process, but he's perfect in all he does, right? Do we not believe that? It is us that must believe that he is perfect in all that he does and accept that by faith, that we trust what he's taking us through for to be for his glory and our good. And we rest in that. And so people going through great affliction, even in this room, and people tied to our church who are suffering, they have that hope and they have joy. And they may even pass from this life, not getting healed of those present things, knowing that Jesus will heal them when they see him in his as he is, they will be like him. So brother and sister, this is a great message. <laughs> this is a message of Jesus 
who not only changes our earthly life, he, he makes us better in this life, doesn't he? Oh boy, does he have something greater. Don't get lost in the lesser and miss the greater. What a great message to remind ourselves of those things. Father in heaven, we praise you for this word of God. Lord, we thank you that Jesus came knowing all things. He knew who had saving faith. He knew who you'd grant it to believe. And Lord, you introduced us to two people today who had to turn their back on what people thought of them. Had to turn away from society and fears and all of those things and put themselves right in front of Jesus by the grace of God. And Lord, I know many in this room have done that. They've put out of their mind what people think. All they need is Jesus. And now they sing, all I have is Jesus. And that saving faith has changed their eternal mind, their eternal heart, Lord. Father, doubtlessly there's those in here that look to Jesus as some kind of magic rabbit foot or don't believe in him in anything, Lord. I pray, Lord, today you would flood their hearts with saving faith that they would go in peace after today, Lord. They would no longer be at war with God. That their life would be at peace through Jesus Christ. They would be justified, declared righteous by his work, Lord. Father, let no one escape this room without that truth. We beg of you for that, Lord. For those of us that have been justified and have a right standing before you and have peace, Lord, may this drive our worship and, Lord, drive our contentment. Help us, Lord, to be content. Content with illnesses and financial woes at times. Content with where you have us in this life, Lord. Because you are perfect in all that you do. But Lord, let us excel still more, Lord. Let us grow. We praise you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.